Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey listeners, Becky here. When we recorded this episode, the release of Out of the Blue was still up in the air. Well, fortunately, by the time you're hearing this episode, the fully restored version should be in theaters, and there are multiple gorgeous Blu-rays packed with extras that will be available. So with just a quick Google, you'll have your pick of where you can see this gem of a film as it was meant to be seen. And now, on with the show. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. In the very first episode of this podcast, we talked about disco and its origins in New York. But today, we're going to look at disco's second home, Montreal. Disco's influence on Canadian film in the late 70s, early 80s can't be overstated. In another show Cam and I did together, we had a chance to talk to prolific film score composer Paul Zaza, and he told us a fantastic story about how when he was hired to score Prom Night, all of the dance numbers had already been shot to the beats of the hottest tracks of the day, and they promptly discovered that to actually use them in the movie would triple the film's budget. So Paul was asked to rescore all of the dance scenes with music that was, and I quote, close enough to the original tracks that they get sued, but not so close that they wouldn't win the suit. They did get sued by one Montreal songwriter in particular, and they did win. But the next time you watch Prom Night, do it with the idea that Love Me Till I Die sounds awfully similar to the iconic Gloria Gaynor track. But what was going on in Montreal that made it such a hot spot for disco legends? Also, did you know that they called disco techs Boite a Go-Go, which is what I intend to call them now? Uh, Cam, what do you know about Montreal disco? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of like timing, really. It's timing and I think the European influence in Montreal. Um, But yeah, essentially, like the idea of the discotheque in in Montreal starts in the 60s, kind of before disco really hits America. And, And that's partially due to that's when disco is kind of forming in Europe. Uh, so they are getting just the idea of like literal dance clubs and discotheques in the 60s. But then it's also kind of paired with the essentially the quiet revolution. So there's this mass industrialization in especially urban Quebec. And one of the things that comes along with it is uh, discotheques and dance clubs. And then it quickly kind of becomes a sign of being cosmopolitan is going to the dance club. So by the time disco hits proper... Uh, Montreal is there early and they're all in. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of interesting things like, um, and I, you're going to have to, uh, I apologize in advance for all my pronunciation of these various French figures who are like famous. Uh, but for instance, uh, the, the DJ Robert Wimay or Robert Wimay, I would assume, uh, he is huge for promoting disco. And you have to imagine too, in the era of radio, uh, a DJ in Montreal is also going to play to a lot of major cities in the U.S. seaboard. So he actually got awards from like Billboard for being such a great DJ uh, and promoting disco, essentially. Uh, and then, of course, the other thing that, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, is the Limelight, which is this massive kind of Studio 54 uh, very early on, 1973, I believe it opens. Um, and it's like a multi-floor disco um where again robert robert uh is the dj <laughs> so he's both on the radio and he's doing music there um and yeah so he got the dj of the year award from billboard in 1977 so that's billboard of america <laughs> like he was cool enough that everyone liked him um and yeah like gloria Gaynor played the limelight in 1977 so there's this crossover as well of european disco and english language and american apparently disco. it was a huge hotspot uh, too for grace oh, jones like sense. grace jones yeah. loved it there oh yeah, yeah. it just yeah. seemed 
Yes. Oh my gosh. So like, here, this is the thing I love. Uh, so the limelight had like different. The th- floors were all themed. The limelight on the second floor was white, black, gay, straight. Third floor was super lime, where only regulars were allowed. And next door was like a cruising bar called Hollywood Disco and a leather bar. So they also say that like, like we hear. Uh, it was very important in Montreal to integrate the straight and gay scenes and also like various ethnicities in Montreal, which if you don't know Montreal, like many places, it was fairly divided uh, along ethnic lines, especially I would assume in the 1960s. So uh, (laughs) yeah, so it's kind of cool that you'd really see that in Montreal, what you've heard that disco was this kind of great coming together. Um, And then, yeah, it's... uh, it continues as well, which is kind of interesting. I think we talked before about Patsy Gallant as well, the the disco star. I think we maybe talked about that on our disco episode. She was uh, Canadian, and she kind of became so famous. She had a TV show that she She's hosted. She still plays and she was Prides, kind of... apparently. Like, apparently she's huge oh, in the yeah, gay community. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. From New York to L.A. is her big song, which is an ad- adaptation of a Quebec-like song. It is interesting song, to think about that influence that specifically Montreal would have in the U.S., where they're, you know, they're listening to a Montreal station. To me, that then makes sense, because especially mm. throughout the 80s and 90s, and maybe to some extent now, Montreal stands for Canada more than Toronto does in the eyes of Americans. So, uh, you know, the idea of when oh, I yeah. meet an American, keeping in mind I am also American, but they, they think I should be speaking fluently in French, that French is my first language, because that Montreal culture was so pervasive. And it makes sense if it's spreading that far across the airwaves. Certainly, I'm, I'm sure Toronto television stations would have been showing in Buffalo and Detroit. But radio and music and, mm. you know, a different language is going to have a far more uh, long term and far reaching effect. So I find that really fascinating. Yeah. Our recent th- just a recent piece of media I would point people to if you like don't understand the Montreal influences uh, the, the show Escape at Danamora yeah, I think does a great I job of that. showing how much Montreal culture yes. is in upstate New York like just the effect of Quebec and, like, on Maine, that area is kind of fascinating certainly Vermont and I mean Quebec is very yeah. is the term wide <laughs> it's very wide and province. especially in the 60s and 70s those are pretty powerful yeah. areas still like the, the yeah, manufacturing absolutely. is still happening there one of the reasons I think it's so um, transversive, I'll go with transversive, that it's able to translate sure. so well, is that a lot of it mm. is um, it's instrumental. So my new jam is yeah. Pepper Box by the Peppers. Go listen to that one. I've been listening to that as I write. It's got okay. a great little rhythm to it. I'm very into it. Um, but Gino Saccio is someone we should probably mention. Mm. Um, my partner actually knows him, and apparently he owns like 80% of the publishing rights of like most of the disco hits you think of. He owns almost all of it but like yeah. he scored for Fellini um, and he did a collaboration with Guy Lafleur <laughs> Cam you're yes. a fan of this one now uh, Guy, Guy Lafleur uh, had who, who a is disco Guy album in French and English one of the most okay. famous uh, hockey was, players sorry. of all time oh yes uh, <laughs> it's okay yeah, he, he's one of the great the, uh, one of the great Montreal Canadians yes uh, but yeah no Gino seems amazing and like you say he's I think specifically instrumental uh, which, which also the other thing to note about Montreal, which I think the European influence helps, is like it doesn't go away. There's not the hard kind of cut you see in the U.S. where all the discotheques board up. As much as the limelight closed in 1980, I think that a lot of Montreal transitioned to electronic music. Like they just used the 80s to go from disco to electronic, which Gino does. But yeah, he had this also great album. I would suggest people look up uh, Quebec Electric with all K's. Quebec Electric, which is awesome. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 very fascinating. It's easy to see how somebody like that, and and I believe he does almost all of the instrumental music for the movie we're going to talk about he as does. well, which is uh, pretty. All exciting. right, well we should get into that yeah. now because the music of Montreal disco stars is a key point of our first movie today. Hey Babe, aka Rise and Shine, aka Baba on IMDb for some reason, but I think it's yeah. meant to be Babe. There's just a typo. Is the moment where 12 year old Yasmin Bleeth busts on to a TV performance of a Gino Saccio track, and it's only one of the glorious scenes that make it a must-seen-to-be-believed campfest drama in the vein of last season's Flying, but it has more intention and heart than Flying. It's just just as fun to watch. Um, it's also a movie that stars Buddy Hackett in one of his final roles, and it's certainly a memorable one. Cam, let's talk Hey Babe. It is worth saying. Yeah, I think he, one of his final stars. Yes, he's also, he for was, those who don't know Buddy Hackett, Scuttle from The Little Mermaid. So we grew up with Buddy Hackett mm. and just don't know it. So yeah. that people are aware. That's right. 
I mean, I like Gone de Louise, <laughs> yes, you know, yes, same yes. kind of like, yeah. Yes. A lot yeah, of TV sure. in our era, too. He, he was a great guest star, a great supporting player. But yeah, so uh, Hey Babe uh, is a film by Raphael Zelinsky, uh, who you guys might remember mm-hmm. from Screwballs, which we've talked about previously. Uh, a little more high-minded, this film. It's still an exploitation of a sort, uh, but um, it's more kids' exploitation. I guess you would say kids' exploitation. So this film tells the story of Teresa, played by Yasmin Bleeth, as you said. Uh, she is a little girl who is a hustler. She's a, uh, uh, a like a latchkey. She's kid. an orphanage. We're talking about two latchkey kid like, works because she yeah. has no home. Yeah, true. I mean, well, she yes, is. She escapes from the orphanage constantly, so she's essentially seemingly homeless. We actually don't find out about oh, the yes. orphanage for about forty minutes, uh, and sh- she's living on the street. Kind of, she, she, like you say, she busts into this disco. She wants to be famous. She's like a singer, a dancer, and she wants. To, she'll do anything to be famous. So first, she busts into this disco thing. Doesn't get anywhere. She decides instead to lie her way into essentially a fame style academy. This is the same year as Fame, so uh, you get a little bit of that. Uh, but but she needs money. She can't figure it out. Like we say, she's a part of an orphanage, yeah. a truly bleak orphanage. This is a, we're also going to be talking about two movies about people in very bleak, bleak circumstances. Orphanage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like a prison. Like a Fellini film. Yeah, like a prison scene in a Fellini film. She gets thrown into but a this prison. This is the fairy tale and the other yes, one's the nightmare. Fair, fair. So you kind of yes, got yes. that going on. And, and it is worth saying, as much as she is in this terrible facility, for the most part, everybody has her best interest in mind. Maybe not the fancy director of the school but there is like a social worker who wants her to succeed but essentially says like if you keep getting into trouble i'm gonna have to send you to potentially i assume a youth detention facility which is yeah kind of terrifying she needs money to get into this fancy academy along the way she's just breaking into places and breaks into an old theater uh where she finds uh buddy hackett uh who is <laughs> living in this derelict theater he is a former talent agent former performer and he kind of sees something in her uh and decides to as much as he is a, a tramp in his own way and very obviously dying almost from minute one uh he takes her in and they kind of try to together uh, make it any way they can. Which I love. Okay, I actually really enjoy this movie. I do not know why this is not like a way bigger camp fest, like that people like what midnight movie people dressing up for this, sure. especially with like the fashion. Yasmin Bleeth looks like young um, Brooke Shields, like definitely within that vein. Mm. And uh, I just think that her, her outfits throughout the whole thing are just so beautifully on the cusp of like between disco and punk that I'm there, really there's into There's a it. point a where like, she's applying cusp. her makeup up in a sidecar of a motorcycle and I wrote that down because I yes. really appreciated it yes. it's kind of the climax of the film <laughs> she's racing to her performance it somehow is I think it's one of the other orphans has a motorcycle with a sidecar and she's like doing her lipstick in yeah. a sidecar and I was just laughing I loved it <laughs> She's, yeah, she's a really interesting character. And the thing that, which I didn't believe, like, understand, we're going to be talking about another young actress who is, like, kind of known as a phenomenon. And he has me believe, I mean, mostly is known for Baywatch. Uh, But find it. And soap operas, but finding out like she's, she's actually pretty good at playing this street kid because she kind of has like big eye bags and looks. She's got a bit of a thousand yard stare, and if you read a bit about her biography, yeah. it's like she she had kind of a tough childhood too. So she she suits this role actually surprisingly well. It's it's a pretty typical kind of kid. She had been acting. She since, sells it pretty I think well. Her first job was ten months. Um, she oh, was yeah. the uh, Johnston Johnston <laughs> yeah. No More Tears baby. So from a very famous uh, international ad campaign. So, I mean, imagine that. Like, she, there is no waking memory that she would have yeah. where she wasn't <laughs> um, a professional, which is uh, actually quite yeah, effective yeah. in this kind of role, for sure. And I think when we talk about our next actress, um, Linda Manns, that's also true. So I, yeah. uh, full disclosure, I uh, contacted Raffle and he was very so kind lovely. and very generous with his time. So I'm so, so pleased. And he was just so wonderful. Um, and so all the information we've got today, not a lot of people write about this movie, unfortunately. Um, and there's mm-hmm. a reason it kind of got lost in the shuffle. We'll get into that. But all this information comes from yeah. him. Thank you, Raffle, if you're listening. Greatly appreciated. Apparently, OK, we have a new name for child actors who we do not care for. Thanks to Raffle, which <laughs> I love. He says we started the audition process and a bunch of Annie's came in. And when, yeah, no, that makes perfect I'm like, sense. I love it because nice. you, you get it. Like, 
over-theatrical big smile stare at the camera. And then he goes, and then Yasmin Bleeth walked in and immediately he was like, who is this? And then she brought in like her her portfolio of photographs from all her modeling. And she had a bunch of photos in it that were shot by one of the guys who used to shoot Brooke Shields all the time, which totally Mm. makes sense. And he was like, this is the girl. And she, he talked about her upbringing and how she was very quote unquote cosmopolitan that like came from a difficult Mm. family. And, and she just was able to translate that into this character so well, which I'm with both of you. It, yeah, it's if you, really if you didn't special. have this performance, with, but unbelievable, this film would fall apart. And that's both um, yeah. I can you can praise yeah. Belief certainly as a youth and obviously very good direction. My understanding, and I don't know if you talked about this with him, Becky, but uh, Zelinsky studied cinema ver- with like cinema verite pioneer Richard Leacock. Sure so as much as we're describing this film as disco camp, and it mm. really is, um, there is an underpinning to it that is very based in reality and very based in emotion dynamic emotions i would say and that's where i see a lot of like lee cock you know totally. i would never say this has a documentary feel it does not <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, yeah I, the, the thing i would give it that will also tie, tie to our next movie too is so much of this movie is yes. just hanging out with just this tag along it's a tag along seeing her yeah. go around the city yeah. and yeah yeah Agreed. like that's and that's some of the best parts and that's some like you say that's some of the most kind of verite parts is she's just doing stuff in the city and and her and buddy hackett too actually just wandering around well, kind of this hustling. is half shot in montreal half shot in actual yeah i New wondered York. about so that. uh alicia mm. how did you like that uh, 42nd street footage hanging out with all the the pimp that's <laughs> yeah, all real people that's I mean, her in some ways interacting with i think it's yeah. reverse it's a different direction but it's almost the same uh montage as shaft when he's walking it's the ah. same it's the same streets oh, the same sure, movie yeah. theaters, it's the same um <laughs> Marquis, it's just 10 years later. Shaft is 71. Uh, I assume this was filmed in 79 or early 1980. Um, and so you're seeing kind of the difference because it's a big, it is a big transition that 42nd Street and what we call the deuce would have experienced between mm-hmm. those two time periods. Um, yeah, I got obsessed with it. I mean, there's also, this is such a, a burlesque film. And I think if you've listened to previous episodes mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that I've discussed my obsession with burlesque on film, I mean, this has... All it's missing is silent film. Yeah, it has a bit of silent film. <laughs> well, not really. I think the film that Buddy Hackett's character yeah. shows her is like, yeah, more early of a talkies. Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire kind of uh, early 30s yeah. film. But um, I do want to bring up that it has, you know, elements of burlesque in her performance. But there is a scene that really, ooh, it, it doesn't sit mm. with me so well. And I'm curious, Becky, if you talk to Raphael about no. it. But um, <laughs> And I think it's a completely believable scene. And this is where Cinema Verite comes in for me. She needs money. Mm-hmm. She's going to do a little performance for all of the very male uh, orphans in the boiler room of this horrible, horrible orphanage. So she's on a table. Yeah, yeah it's like the nightmarish, complete nightmare. Freddy Krueger yes. boiler room. So she does. It's a regular burlesque routine, like routine without the nudity. She's got a little like more vaudeville, I would say. And then they won't give her her money unless she takes her clothes off, and she does. Um, she had previously been wearing a skin, like a nude bodysuit to make it seem like she was naked, like with nipples drawn on, I think, or even taped on mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. And then they're like, no, you're, the only way you're going to get our money is if you actually do it. And luckily, I mean, I think she's do- she's fully engaged in this when she's caught. And we don't see necessarily yeah. nudity. I mean, keeping in mind she's 12 years old. But it was a scene that really stuck yeah. with me because um, as much as this film has a lot of camp and a lot of fun and a lot of you know, let's say jouissance, it also has this very real aspect of how a young girl in this situation would be sexually exploited from basically puberty, if not mm-hmm. earlier. And I like that because it's it may be uncomfortable, but I think it's the it's an underpinning for why this yeah. is really good. The, yeah. the film acknowledges it throughout. Like, and I think that's actually, again, that weird uh, the social I worker, so, who yeah. I think mostly has her best interests in heart, is is mostly yes. concerned about her yeah. being sexually exploited throughout from Buddy There's Hackett, a, from an these incredible guys. Incredible documentary, yeah. Um, that uh, is co-directed by Mary Ellen Mark, who we recently lost. She's a one of the greatest photographers of our age, um, and it's called Streetwise, and it's it follows girls who are very similar to this character in 1980 i want to say 1981 it might be slightly off in a few uh in my years in seattle and these are street kids who are hustlers um and, you know it follows one particular girl named aaron blackwell which when i was watching this film uh all i could think about was aaron some of the most like stunning photographs and disturbing um one of the, some of the most one of the most disturbing documentaries i've ever seen that i both love and can't 
shake. And it, it is this character. This is kind of the fantasy that someone like Erin Blackwell in Streetwise um, would maybe have had about her life on the streets when, in fact, the reality is, and of course, Erin is a, a sex worker at a very young age. In reality, this is probably where we could see this character of Teresa in a couple of years. I can see that. I I I found I, I kind of I clocked that scene as well, Alicia, as being the moment of like, oh, how do I feel about this? Mm. But I like that it pulls you out and genuinely makes you think about the fantasy. But it also shows, yeah. and something I really liked about this character is that she is willing to put in the work. Yeah. She's not just I'm going to be fa- uh, I'm not I'm going to be famous at any cost. She's like I am going to learn how to dance. I'm going to learn how to do this right. I'm trying to go through the proper channels. Um, and unfortunately, that also means that I may have to at some point sell my body to do the thing that i need to do which is horrifying she's a hustler in like like she actually is a scam artist in awesome ways i super love the start she gets away because she gives one of those i am deaf and yes. mute cards <laughs> and when the lady looks down at the card she looks <laughs> yeah, back that up actually, and she's gone that's a great <laughs> it's cut like, oh, that, it's a great cut it's like a looney tunes yeah and also yeah and it's like that's an interesting part because I think it's kind of implied throughout the action of the film that perhaps if she had have stayed with that lady, she might have given her an opportunity. That that well, lady she comes actually back to saw that lady. something. But like, she's that's also, the lady that eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I mean. Yeah, that's the lady that gets her. She's eventually. also self sabotaging constantly, which is really heartbreaking as well. Because someone who is messed up like that, who has that rebellious streak, mm. that's something she has to learn how to curb, right? Like when she sets the woman's dress <laughs> on fire in the middle of that club, which is oh, yeah, an amazing yes. moment. Um, but I, I but I, that also is real to me. Because because this kid is so messed up and she yeah. doesn't know who to trust and who's going to help her, right? Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's playing, like a lot of this is kind of, what we're, we're kind of focusing on the real parts, but a lot of this is like an 80s fantasy fun movie with fun Can we talk about Buddy Hackett and Drag, which was easily <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite I mean, uh, <laughs> That's like, yeah, she kind of, she wants to go to the school and isn't sure she can get the money and then it's funny because Buddy Hackett really sees something in her and he is a talent agent and like he knows what he's talking about. She has pretended her mother is this fancy producer and Buddy Hackett in drag and he is not a guy who did a lot of drag so this is also kind of like unique uh he comes and pretends to be this mother this fancy but also it's funny because he's still it's stuck in the vaudeville. 30s or whatever yeah. so he's yeah, dressed like, like may, may west, west yeah. kind of yeah he's and doing he, like lady blackwell from uh from oscar yeah. wilde stuff yeah. oh yes he's got the funny voice yeah has our darling told you that the o'briens have had a long time tradition in show business why even i of course i was much younger boom boom bertha the bombshell of burlesque boom boom <laughs> It's interesting. And I also think, yeah, what we're talking about with like the fun and the the other stuff, I I shared a review Mm -hmm. from Jay Scott and Jay Scott gets so stuck on that sex thing. But I think the thing that Jay Scott overlooks and I agree that scene is icky. I I think part of it is unfortunately just like when you're a male director, there's always the male gaze implication. There's all the semiotic stuff. It just feels weird. Uh, But the other thing that I think that he overlooks is the fact that like Buddy Hackett and her are playing it like she is an 11 year old and Buddy Hackett is like yeah. 80. So as much as people worry about her being sexually exploited, like that never even crosses their mind. Like Buddy Hackett is in love with whoever the lady is in the movie that is long dead. And, and this is a child. And Buddy Hackett knows that. Uh, so like, yeah, when they're like goofing around in a bathtub together, you're never like oh, skin crawling. You're like, no, this yeah, is I like a grandpa and a child. Photos of that that might be online or something like that would miss cast yeah. this film. Oh, I, yeah. I, um, I do want to give a shout out it. to the orphans yeah. that hotwired a school bus like it's like they're in Little Darlings <laughs> or something like that. Like what is up with 1980 films yes. doing this? They are all bad orphans. In, in 1980 it's worth you saying, Little Darlings yeah. with Chris McNichol and Tame O'Neill, one of my favorite films of all time and we talk about it on the TV show and we actually talk about the scene where they all hotwire a bus, school bus to go steal condoms out of a public restroom. <laughs> But they just end up yes, stealing the whole they, machine yeah. because but they can't get the condom. Yeah, they just rip the condom machine off the wall. Yeah. So in 1980, did a kids regularly oh. hotwire school buses? <laughs> I, I can <laughs> I can tell you I, what I think it is. And what I think it is is there is like a big push. Because this is also, the, these 1980 movies really predate the big teen movie boom. You can kind of say Animal House and stuff like that or uh, American Graffiti, but those aren't really teen movies, right? So uh, what I think that there is and why the focus is women especially is the big boom of young adult Mm. fiction Mm. in the 70s. Stuff like Go Ask Alice and The Chocolate War and all the Judy Bloom and Meatballs was huge. So I also think that Canada was pushing like 
young people stories as much as meatballs is mostly about bill murray <laughs> it was point. created as a story about young people uh yeah so there's like beyond that there's also i think ordinary people yeah. is really a teen movie as much as it is Good about call. the adults carney is, is this carney year the one with is this year. yes it is so, oh i've been dying yes. to see this yes, one. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's uh it's something yes. let me tell you i haven't seen it either. i watched it yeah. it's but interesting yeah <laughs> yeah yes yeah. so, so there's a lot of uh there's a lot of well, like kids on the edge but i think, I think that that was pretty regular in fiction at the time is don't trust men like if i was a little girl watching this yeah. and to yes. some extent <laughs> becky you and i have both talked about how much we lament not having little darlings in our upbringing because it was a very hard yeah. film to see um and i think it would have changed a lot of how i judged myself as a young adult i think this this film is especially about how you know you cannot trust men you cannot the only people who yeah. help are really are some of the female characters. Yes, Buddy Hack is going to try, but it's it's the female social worker mm. and the female um, talent agent, or, you know, I think she's yeah. a producer for a television show that end up kind of hopefully, I hope, rescuing her. I do love that this ends with mm. a giant, like, Cinderella reenactment. That is really the film at its strongest. <laughs> yeah. It's Busby it's Berkeley. Adorable. He said that's his Busby, Busby Berkeley on a budget yeah. moment. And I was yeah. like, that's why I love yeah, it. Yeah, her so dress much. is amazing. It works really yeah, well. It looks like a music video. That, yeah. Um, God, Yasmin Bleeth. I hope she's okay currently. She, she seems I think, fine. I think, like Linda Manns, I think she just decided that this acting thing is not the thing. And I think Yasmin Bleeth, especially, has just said right. she's like focused on her sobriety and just living so life. So the other thing we should talk about yeah. is I think a lot of the reason why this movie works is because it is written Edith by Ray. a woman. It is written by Edith Ray. Mm. That's right. And uh, apparently Raffle met her at a party and convinced her to start writing movies mm. with him. And they had a whole bunch of stuff in development. Uh, he has a bunch of stuff in development. His his um, uh, his brain just doesn't stop. Mm. He's one of those directors just creates, yeah. creates, creates, and is always working on new things. Um, and it looks like, so Cam, you pulled up that she was working on a bunch of Don Carmody projects for hire, which which you are correct, yeah. including one called okay. Space Hunter 3D, which I am personally Wait, you've never seen that? Oh. It's Molly Ringwald. I ha- no, we, 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 yeah, we did it for, yeah. and, uh, it and cut, but it was really has been on Hollywood and yeah. as of possibly last night, might be coming yeah. back to <laughs> sweet based what okay well yeah. i will have to catch might it then be, when it comes be. back uh, i actually have i have a little behind the scenes story about that one when i talked to don carmody he actually mentioned that movie because the director was fired halfway through it and then they hired another director mm-hmm. and he picked this director up from the airport and as he's talking to him he goes hey i'm sorry i don't mean to intrude but do you only have one eye and the director goes, yeah, what's the problem? He goes, well, the movie oh, is in 3D. How are you going yeah. to see this Jeez. if you only have one eye? Which is the moment Don Carmody decided he was going to direct his first film, which is one of my favorite movies called mm-hmm. The Surrogate. So there you go. That's my little uh, thing. But he, yes. But now, uh, Becky, first Space Hunter, just to, to quickly get out. Number one, mm-hmm. you need to see it because it mm-hmm. features Michael Ironside as a Great robot monster called Overdog. Yes. And number two, the important thing everybody needs to know about Space Hunter, Space Hunter is why mm-hmm. Ernie Hudson is a Ghostbuster. Really? Because uh, that's uh, like a, it's a Canadian connection. Uh, Ivan Reitman. You know, yep. They saw yeah, Ivan Reitman saw Ernie Hudson be so charming in Space Hunter and was like, and Molly Ringwald is super. They're filming yeah. this in 81, 82. Oh, so, yeah. So because it takes a while, they wanted to time it for the release mm. of Return of the Jedi. This was going to be Canada's answer to Return of the Jedi, which, to be honest, <laughs> it kind of oh, was. It was a huge box office hit. Like, oh, I'm yeah, so sorry, that's a total detour. I also just watched a Don Carmody film. Like two nights ago, that's on Hollywood Suite called The Big Town. He produced it. That it's one's really good. Eh? If if mm. our listeners are looking, it's going to be on. It's on demand. Yeah. Well, it's on demand as the time that we're recording this, but I think it'll be on broadcast and at, at the very least when this is released. But uh, Matt Dillon, Diane Lane, really burlesque, like literally Diane Lane burlesque performance. Mm. Um, yeah. Tommy Lee Jones, like just a fantastic film. I love Don's work. Ugh, I know. And he, he's mm-hmm. one of Canada's biggest producers. If people mm-hmm. do not recognize that oh, name, like that was a big thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So Edith, um, unfortunately, like everybody else, got so tired of, um, you know, not the things just not panning out. And she went back and now has an incredible visual yeah. arts career. She was trained as a painter. That's yeah. how she started. Started writing films and television, actually with her husband. Apparently, the two of them wrote together as co-writers. And then she just mm-hmm. got tired of the industry and decided to go back to painting. You can see everything on her website if you are interested in her visual arts. I will go ahead and plug that. 
Edith Ray. Yeah, and I mean, she's, uh, I think she might be the sole screenwriter on <laughs> The Vindicator, which is kind of a classic one. Oh, uh, she's with David Preston. So, yeah, but no, that's a kind of a, if you know, don't know Canada's Terminator, <laughs> that's an Edith Ray joint. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I, it was this, just cool to know that she But I think that's that. the balance of why the film doesn't ever get too yeah. icky yeah. and why oh, there yeah. isn't too male gazy. Oh, yeah. is, is why. And, and, I also think that you, you the the thing to show it up against, like to show Jay Scott, which he couldn't know because it was in the future, is like, uh, you know, he knows from from being a gross guy because he did screwballs yeah. and valet girls. Like he knows how to make a boob mm-hmm. movie, and this was not. So a, not I a should boob also movie. point out that he makes a lot of these movies about people taking care of each other. So the other one he's really known for is mm-hmm. Ginger Ale mm-hmm. Afternoon, which has Yardley Smith in it, mm-hmm. which is a really fascinating film. Um, and the other one he just recently made, his most recent, is called Tiger Within, um, which is Ed Asner's final on-screen role mm. um, and is also about an older man taking in a younger troubled woman where she is apparently a violent racist and he's a Holocaust yeah. survivor. Um, so it's kind of the wow. two of them learning to figure each other out and how to how to communicate. So, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, I would say if you look at the vastness of his filmography, it's mostly about young women, right? Like that's kind of, this is kind of a guy who directs especially, yeah, teen women. Which is interesting. Even Screwballs we talked about had surprisingly good it's women people characters. people having fun, also written by a woman. Um, so I just want to yeah. b- go into briefly that this is getting a full restoration out of Raffle's pocket. He's been working on it for the past three years. He said the color correcting was the most mm. difficult part because this is such a Line bright neon. film and he wanted to make sure that was reflected. Mm. It's gorgeous. Um, that, that Man, that final scene with all the whites is just mm-hmm. going to look so amazing. I'm so excited to see it in a full restoration. Um, but what happened was is that he got the money because it was like, it's this is tax shelter, but he didn't get it from independent mm. sources. He was able to fund a million dollars directly from Telefilm and like the Montreal Fund mm-hmm. and all that. So then he took his million dollars and he went to Hollywood and he said, hey, is anyone going to match this for me? And Karelko said that they were going to match it. So uh. he got the two million. He said that is the worst mistake yeah. he has ever made because at that point, as soon as they got the movie, they started hacking yeah. and cutting and doing exactly what they wanted to do with it. So there's two versions. There's a Canadian version and an American version. I think I've seen the Canadian version because it made sense um, and that one is actually available for purchase right now on his website unrestored but the full restored version is coming and to that, like that's iTunes the one that like we've that. typically had it. on Hollywood Suite from Hollywood Suite's inception is is we've mm. always gotten it directly from him um, I'd be curious to compare the two versions I don't know how one would see the American version but uh, mm. yeah that's interesting I'm, I'm very excited as well for restoration I mean this could be done in a a cinema that would be wonderful on the big screen with good sound design and uh, the right color timing that'd be great (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can always get a time machine and go back to the Los Angeles Olympics where this had its original presentation in the Film X Festival. Amazing. Ugh. Ugh. All right. I loved this. You guys love this. I mean, I think it's worth saying, like, the, this movie and the next movie as a kind of bridge are also films that came out and were made in 1980, but were maybe yes. not released for years yeah. and years and people didn't know when to see them. So you're going to see a lot of different 83, times 85. <laughs> yeah. 83. Yeah. I think both of these kind of got their widest release in 83 but you also see this one played it, at it Montreal played at Film TIFF Festival though in 84 so. so it plays the it premieres at the Taormina yes. okay. yeah, um, yeah. Film Festival in Sicily is my understanding and Raphael will know better but mm-hmm. this is what the literature says that it, it yeah. actually premieres before TIFF at a different yeah. TIFF called the Taormina Film Festival um, in 80 then plays what's called the Festival of Festivals which is now TIFF in the fall of 80 yeah. Then has some probably issues with finding a buyer distributor because of these this financial side to yeah. it and it yeah. not being directly a Canadian film, and then probably you know meanders for a few years after that. Yeah, God knows, but hopefully played on TV forever and still does. Thanks. That's so. right. Yeah, show, uh, it ended up on Showcase, and apparently we just played a cut few. Of course, it ended up on Gen Showcase. It played there a few showcase times. Review. <laughs> And yeah, sure. I mean, I, that I know uh, Buddy Hackett from this TV show Action, which I think appeared on Showcase, maybe. All right. So uh, another film that I'm sure played significantly on Showcase, mostly due to the uh, incredibly bleak, violent content, but also because it is full of absolutely incredible performances, is our next film. It's Out of the Blue, coming up next. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Last season, in our Blue Velvet Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 episode, we went into detail on the fascinating life of Dennis Hopper. In 1980, his career as an actor was on the rocks. And, of course, his career as a director was as well, after the disaster of the last movie. He took a role in a Canadian made-for-TV movie that sounds, frankly, abysmal. Think in the style of Christy McNichol in 1985's Love, Mary, where an out-of-control teen turns her life around after a teacher who cares discovers she's dyslexic. Yeah. The dailies were coming back, and they were not good. The producers were about to pull the plug, and then... But we're going to get into that. Alicia, is it better to burn out than to fade away? I mean, according to the the ending of the film, it's better to uh, burn out. (laughs) And we will not spoil this film, because I think this is a very uh, (laughs) underappreciated, underseen masterpiece. I'm going to say that. It absolutely is, is a masterpiece. Um, so we won't give it away, but I mean, I think if you just read the plot of the film, you can probably guess that it's it's not a happy ending. Uh, this was a film that was actually started out uh, as a film called The Case of Cindy Barnes. Uh, it was going to be like a, like you said, a made-for-TV movie, um, very cheesy. It was written um, by Leonard Yacker as well as his partner at the time, and it was going to be directed by Leonard Yacker. He starts filming it in, uh, this is really set in Vancouver. We talk a lot about, um, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains is a really great Vancouver film. And it is, Mm. Out of the Blue is like, if you grew up in British Columbia, and specifically Vancouver, my goodness, this is like probably the bowling alley that you went to in the 1980s. This is probably the movie theater that you went to. Like, it Mm. really is a lost Vancouver that um, I was so delighted to see. He starts filming it, and three weeks in, it becomes incredibly clear that he can't he's not competent um and he has i think talked about this like it's not like someone told him you suck you got to get out he just knew he couldn't do this and that's primarily because of the two stars dennis hopper um and but even more so the rawness of linda mans linda mans i think i hope our listeners know is the young girl from terrence malick's days of heaven Um, Both in this case of the film Out of the Blue and Days of Heaven, she was meant to have a much smaller role and then somehow becomes the star of both films entirely by improvising dialogue and just almost free association speech. Um, Days of Heaven, all of those monologues that she has, the voiceovers, which structure the entire film, were never in the screenplay and we're actually a case of Malik just asking her to start talking, just start rambling, say anything. And she starts talking, that becomes the entire thesis of Days of Heaven. And lo and behold, she does it again just two years later with this film where she really takes it over. So something that was meant to be an after-school special called The Case of Cindy Barnes becomes out of the blue, one of the most um, nihilistic but realistic portrayals of... Um, childhood abuse uh, and alcoholism and drug addiction and uh, growing up on the fringes of society uh, that I've seen in a long time. I'm not even saying what the plot is. Sorry. I will talk about the plot now. (laughs) 
I loved it too, Alicia. I'm with you. I never. It's in on my list of movies I never want to see again. I but can I am see myself very glad I have it to try to wrap my head around it. But I'm so glad that it hadn't. It wasn't spoiled for me going into it. And I. This is a film that my partner and I have tried to seek out for years, and we were going to wait until this glorious promised restoration, um, which I, I my understanding is did play in Venice recently and did play in Vancouver. It's sort of however it played in Vancouver. Has no plans yeah. to come out commercially and is not shown anywhere on the eastern seaboard and i will talk later about why because it comes down to copyright um and you know we ended up having to watch a crappy file and even then it blew me away but um cindy barnes is nicknamed cb um not only because it's her initials but because she's the daughter of a truck driver dennis hopper the opening of the film is uh we find out a flashback to cb in um the truck with her father who is drinking and he crashes his truck horrifically into a school bus and kills dozens of children in a small town. He goes to prison uh, for, I believe, five years, which seems like a... Yeah. They get him for manslaughter. That's why he pleads guilty and they get him on la- on manslaughter, which is one of those things. I would also assume, honestly, in this era yeah. that drunk driving is not yeah. a factor. Yeah, like impaired I want to be driving clear charges that this probably bus don't sequence, exist. Which, um, if you've seen the suite hereafter, this is 25 <laughs> times what that is. Yep. <laughs> it is yeah. the most alarming opening to a film I can think of in recent memory. I assumed it was a fantasy sequence because we do see her five years later wake up sweating like she's mm. had this as a nightmare. But no, this has really happened. Yeah. And it's worth, like, PTSD style, this mm-hmm. recurs throughout the film mm-hmm. just because she'll randomly kind of And it's of not be just, I, I don't, I, this, what I'm going to say is very graphic, so I, I do want to warn listeners. It's not just like, oh, truck barrels into a school bus. It is so terrifyingly orchestrated that you see the bodies of children fall out of the bus. You see them being dragged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's, it's dummies, but it, it looked real. It's, why it works is because it's Halloween yes. and all the kids are dressed in costumes, so the dummies kind of have these it's costumes very on. very smart. And and on the part of Dennis Hopper, great director, very smart. And so we really meet CB. She's, I believe, 12 or 13 years old, and she is excited because her dad's going to be released from prison. She hasn't been able to visit her father while he was incarcerated, um, except for like maybe a week before he's being released. Her mother is a waitress struggling, obviously, um, with heroin addiction, and she really believes that her father coming home is going to solve everything, that they're going to be a family again. Um, She's very into the punk scene, which this, if you have a knowledge of Vancouver punk in the late 70s and early 80s, of which I do not, I had to kind of look it up. I think it's probably a really important film because you're getting performances by kind of this iconic Vancouver punk band called The Pointed Sticks. Um, at one point with Linda Mann's even playing uh, drums <laughs> to one of their performances. She's she's Linda Mann. If you've never seen Linda Mann, she is um, one of the most visually arresting actresses I can think of. She She's magnetic. Uh, magnetic is the yeah, only word you can she use. She has her, really. she's so childish. You know, she doesn't have a womanly body for her age, yet she is so much older than her years. Uh, she, is, she has natural scarring on her face, which is very convenient for the film because she was injured in this bus, in this truck and bus accident. But I could stare at her for hours. She's just unsettling. And um, this film is just a roller coaster ride of what her life is. And it's almost all downs. There's no ups, really. Um, and the reality of Dennis Hopper and this performance. I think he said he believes it's one of his best. He's definitely said that he feels this is his best film, that this is the true sequel to Easy Rider from 69. It's not the last movie, which we can talk about last movies insane, but um, this is truly his best work. <laughs> we'll get to it on the podcast. And I I'm agree. Sure. Yeah. I think it's, I'm just astonished. I'm astonished by this yeah. film. I want everyone to watch it, but then I'm also very scared for people to watch it. Um, and Hopper, you know, it was really on the fringes of society at this point with his own addictions. Um, it's so believable as he becomes the villain in this film. 
Well, let's get into that a bit, Cam, because both you and I went down a bit of a rabbit hole of where he was at and his sure. addictions. This is right before he went to rehab, before he had the hopper sauce mm -hmm. in 1983. Cam, what was going on here? There's some interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, he was so he was going around shopping um, a sequel to Easy Rider, which is also, I think, why he considers this that uh, called Biker Heaven. Uh, which was about, I believe, aliens come down and pull him and uh, him and Captain America out of a swamp, and it's a lesbian-controlled future apocalypse. It, it sounds insane and not good. Um, but what he was interested in and why he considers this part of it is, like, what would these yeah. guys be like? Uh, and I think the interesting thing that comes out of it is, in spite of the fact that he was in the throes of addiction he realizes that those guys would probably be a piece yeah. of shit. <laughs> like, those guys would Yeah, suck. and there's no sympathy they, uh, for these people at all. They are no, played horrifically. No, like yeah. that, and, and him saying that he thinks that probably those cool characters... Yeah, they'd go from, from taking Rider amazing, like, cool mind-expanding psychotropic drugs. Is that the word? Psychotropic? No. Yeah. Psychotropic. Psychotropic. <laughs> you can tell how much LSD yeah. I've done in my life. Um, and, you know, they would then just be fucking strung out heroin addicts, unable to feed their children in the yeah. 1980s. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, what, where else he was, was he was at, like, full chaos. I mean, obviously, he's coming off of Apocalypse Now. Certain people knew how to work with him, and he'd put in some really great performances recently, but he was so out of control that probably what you want to talk about is the film Human Highway, the Neil Young film, which is kind of famously a mess and famously hard to yeah. see, too. Um, but I think it's it's recently had a restoration and is, is kind of coming back. Uh, it stars, co-stars Devo, we're saying, uh, and he had a small role as a Chef. And, and as Mark Mothersbaugh put it, uh, Dennis Hopper's drug-induced mania, <laughs> he couldn't say his lines, he couldn't speak his sentence. He just ignored every direction he got. He was a short-order cook in the movie, and he was playing with a knife, and it ended up cutting Sally Kirkland oh, really yeah. bad. And uh, part of the reason he was in Canada was because yeah. Sally Kirkland was well, yeah. suing him yeah. for stabbing yeah. her, uh, and he fled to another country. <laughs> That's why he agreed to do this dumb movie. And also his, his friend, uh, Paul something, who's one of the producers, essentially uh, used this movie to extradite yes. out of the country to get away from stabbing Sally Kirkland. The other um, thing that happened with yeah. this, which is interesting, is that because he took over as director, this film could not be used for the ta Canadian tax credit. So it went from making yeah, so it all its money its to no money whatsoever immediately. And it's also part of the reason why it does so well it can but it it ha it doesn't have distribution yeah. set up, so that's part of the reason why this, this was kind of falls into This was a sensation at Cannes, and I want to really, really focus on that because there's you're going to read some articles on this film that say it, it bombed. It didn't. It didn't. Um, I've read more like first person accounts from people that I trust, such as let's just say Roger Ebert, who was like, "This yeah, was, was this Ebert was going to be the biggest amazing. sale at Cannes mm -hmm. of 1980." And it was absolutely just assumed that Linda Manns would be nominated for Best Actress, not Best Supporting, but Best Actress. Mm -hmm. That this would, and she would win it most likely. Um, yeah. I think 1980 yeah. would be Sissy Spacek for Coal Miner's Daughter. Did, yeah. uh... That so sounds right. Yeah, but um, yeah, you're right. it really was successful, but you're right. They screwed up the very insane minutia of what makes it a Canadian tax shelter film. Mm hmm. <laughs> well, kind of the mega usha of getting is, rid of the Canadian all, director yeah, and putting an American in the director's people who are not aware, all of the major Every actor major and all the major pro like production yeah. and people you all could, have to be yeah. I mean, there are, but, okay, wait a minute, though. There are other Canadian films that are tax shelter films with American <laughs> directors. Think about, like, The Silent Partner in 1978. Yes, but you yeah. would have to have a lot of Canadian actors, which this does not have. This has very few. Raymond Burr is essentially it. And Raymond, my understanding of Raymond Burr is for that reason. he was largely written out of it, like you're saying, but that he also got pissed and then renounced Him his and Hopper. citizenship as a result of this film. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, Raymond Burr is, there is a Raymond Burr theater in Vancouver, but yeah. And and it's also interesting because, I mean, you hear about, it's, it's interesting because you're essentially getting so many sources, like I'm sure you have had to. I was kind of interested because a lot of the sources say that like Leonard G. Keir is like an an inexperienced director, but it's like he had a pretty famous movie in 1975. Well, that's what so I'm it's saying. Not like Why didn't nobody. they just have Dennis so, um, secretly, from, but, uh, secretly oh. direct it? 
Well, no, no, and I think I think you're right. Though the restoration guy has a good talk about it, and he's like, I, he just thinks that the Linda Man's style was so different. So I think that, like you say, Leonard Ducure kind of stepped away, uh, and uh, and I also think that, like I say, the one of the producers was a. a, a hopper best friend who knew how to work with hopper and the other thing is like you hear a lot of the roles i don't know do you guys know that paul the boyfriend that runs the diner is not an actor he's actually the production (laughs) designer and with a pseudonym (laughs) so it's obviously somebody again who could handle hopper and deal with hopper stepping in and playing a one of the He's main good. five roles, <laughs> well, basically. Sharon Farrell, who plays the mother. Like, this is just a, a incredible cast of, like, fascinating human <laughs> beings. You have this I've, quote, uh, right, uh, from yes. her? You, you, oh, I've got, got it. Okay, so, she, so people who aren't familiar with Sharon Farrell, she was wooed by a young Che Guevara when she was in Cuba making Kiss Her Goodbye in mm. 1959. She dated, Bruce, she dated Bruce Lee on the set of Marlowe and hung out with Peter O'Toole on The Stuntman, which we're going to be talking about. And her quote uh, mm. is, uh, first we started with a beer and a joint, Everybody's stoned, everybody's drunk, everybody partied, but that was back when everyone was doing it too. It was like today with crews carrying bottled water. So this was just like a massive party on this set the whole time. That's oh. how they started I mean, their I've days. Got, I've got a, maybe I've oh, got a better go. quote than where she, she's like, she loves it. She says it's a great movie again, but she's like, how do you respect somebody who's running around on a motorcycle late for every scene because he's shooting somewhere or shooting up somewhere? Then he comes in, he's all excited, he's late, but he's got a great big pile of cocaine. <laughs> so we go all in. We give him $100 for a gram. He was our director, our writer. Oh, and that's our <laughs> Oh, yeah, so there's that, and it's so Richard Linklater also of like Dazed and Confused mm. and Boy, like the famous famous director. Um, you can yeah, definitely yeah. see how he would be a big fan of this because it has that very much slice of life one day sort of thing that he loves and that mm. he does. Um, and so he went to the original screening of this in. Houston, I believe it was in Houston, um, where to introduce it, Dennis Hopper had made this absolutely bonkers video of himself in a room. After the fact, he made a crazy video. Him and Vim Vanders, which you would appreciate. Sit in a dark room and contemplate. (laughs) Well, him and Vim Vanders come, and yeah, he like makes a purpose. The way Linklater describes it, and you can find him describing this, he made a purposefully confrontational, crazy video to essentially clear out the audience. and see who is like the Dennis Hopper the real heads. And then, <laughs> the diehards. And then he's like, all right, guys, we're going to a party. Like he kept announcing that there was a party after a party after. And Linklater was Link like, Linklater would have been a kid. This Hopper is 1980. Part. He would have yes, been like. He was a, he was a teenager. Yeah, I, was say 17 I believe years he old. was a teenager. Yeah. I think that oh, this screening okay. was in 1983. Yes. It was post can. Yeah. Uh, post can pre sobriety though, because so what happens is he essentially takes them to in a school bus. He keeps saying there's a party. So Nobody the, really the room believes clears it. He takes from three hundred people to like, tw- to like 10, ten or twenty. Yeah, yeah, real yeah. small. He 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 takes them on a school bus to a the end of a demolition derby, like to the sticks <sighs> of Texas, uh, to a motor speedway. Uh, he goes to something that he calls the Russian dynamite death chair where it is a chair literally surrounded by a circle of dynamite and if the dynamite all goes off perfectly there is a vacuum and you are protected Uh if anything goes wrong you are blown up by dynamite Uh, so Dennis Hopper does it pulls off the stunt (laughs) evil Knievel style and he comes Uh, out Richard Linklater does uh, a Dennis Hopper impersonation going like I did it I survived it and I will tell you if you put into YouTube Dennis Hopper's Russian dynamite death chair. You can see footage. He survives, uh, which and, makes it and, okay. But oh man. Yes, he survives. He and, and as Becky and I know from our research too, he immediately goes to the jungle, does too much acid, and the mix of the Russian dynamite death chair and this How jungle trip is what Houston makes him decide to, to be jungle. sober. He, he also went to the jungle. He was shooting a movie. They couldn't find That's him right. for Again, years. Um, a movie yeah. that was not in Amer- in North America. So he goes to the jungle in yeah. South America in order to do this other film. But yeah. listen, you can at least appreciate that blowing yourself up with dynamite. He's like, man, I can get <laughs> And do Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre too as anyway, my career comeback. Uh, uh, yeah, and exactly. And Blue Velvet. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a right. fun side story, but just like what the state, and I also think that's the state because he really wrote this with Linda Manns, which is, and that's also actually what the the great producer who's involved in the restoration talks about is he thinks that the the fight that Leonard Ukier and Linda Manns had was just Linda Manns wasn't interested in the sure t- she... TV movie style movie, and and Dennis, yeah, and then Dennis Hopper realized. 
I can essentially I'll just write this movie around who yeah. Linda Mans is. But also the uh, the interesting thing is is the the producer often goes out of his way to say a lot of stuff that's credited to yeah, Hopper was fair. weirdly in the original yeah. script. He's like yes. her obsession with Elvis, that jacket, that is all part of the original script. Um, but yeah, but I think and like we talked about the beautiful yeah. footage of her just wandering around Vancouver, Street, interacting like, with weirdos like, yeah. on Hastings Street, on Granville, the weird Elvis guy that she just runs into uh, in Chinatown. And then also mm-hmm. what you were talking about, the great punk stuff. Uh, and I mean, it's kind of fascinating, like you say. It's this weird thing where she's obsessed with punk, but also in a really kid way where it's like, mm-hmm. do you even get what you're saying? She's just kind of like parroting dialogue. But then, yeah, there's a, a wonderful uh, interview with the, the lead singer, The Pointed Sticks, who also says, you know, they, they were told to start a show at 6 p.m. and Dennis Hopper didn't show up till midnight so he's like all the kids were drunk and passed out but I guess that's probably what he wanted which is a pretty famous um, I think so you're also getting really great scenes of the Varsity Ridge bowling like I started looking all the locations up most of which have been bulldozed unfortunately Um, I think the movie theater might still be standing but isn't a movie theater yes the movie theater it's not a movie theater anymore but it was yeah yeah it yeah. was the big cineplex for a yeah, while. Yeah, so did Brendan, my partner watching it from um, Port Moody. He was like, oh yeah. my God, like, I know that lobby. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it, was, yeah. it was the big downtown one, uh, even when well, I lived we there. We talked yeah. about the restoration and it being seen, and we talked about um, this being seen in the first place and not getting distributors. And apparently, have you guys heard of Jack Nicholson's favor notebook? Mm-hmm. I'm all too oh scared God, to yeah. ask for context. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is my new favorite thing. So I watched an interview with uh, the producer, I believe, the same one Cam's talking about. Um, it's a current one where he talked about they were trying to get people to see this. So he's like, can you get Jack Nicholson to talk about this movie? I know he's your buddy. And Hopper's like, I can't do that. I can't do that. Because he's got this little book. <laughs> and he has all of his friends' names written in it. And once you ask him for a favor, he crosses that name oh out. God. And but you never get Nicholson another favor. Nicholson did speak about this film but Nicholson did speak about this film. Yeah. That was the favor. So apparently they went for a lost weekend hang at Jack Nicholson's and the result of which was he did but a radio I, ad I, for I them will, endorsing maybe it. I might be so naive. Like I, I was reading Jack Nicholson's comments on this film and I believe mm-hmm. what Jack Nicholson is saying. I don't think this it. is like, no oh, question. let's push this it. crappy yeah. film oh, that yeah. Dennis Hopper made. And No, I think no, actually no, no. genuinely there are no. people um, who saw this. They just didn't have enough power. And also this film is too tough for people. Yeah, it's a it's a rough. I I understand. Like as much as they're saying it's uh, like various machinations of tax shelter, I, I think agree. I could also just see it having a tough sale I agree. because it's, it's tough. like yeah, it's a tough a tough movie to sell the... at all. Like and I I even feel almost the same way about Hey Babe. Like it's got kind of, both of these are kind of confrontational and it's worth saying trigger warning for both movies that with the, yeah. the sexual elements. Uh, yeah, something like yeah, Little it's, Darlings it's a tough and film. Adrian Lyons Foxes, which is so similar yes. to Out of the Blue. And Foxes is same year, 1980, uh, starring mm. Jodie Foster in one of her kind of, her last role before she becomes a full-time student at Yale and takes a break. Um, and yeah. Sherry, and Sherry, Curry Curry from the Sherry Curry so, from The Runaways. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this is, type. those two could have, these two films could have gone together really well, but we wanted to do Hey Babe because it's Canadian. Um mm. You know, this idea like that Foxes and Little Darlings are safer films because there's more packageable mm. stars and... And there's a moral to the end of Foxes. Yeah. There's People are punished I mean, yeah. things like that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're yeah. not Sherry nihilistic Curry doesn't like this. blow herself yeah. up. She dies from a car accident. <laughs> but yeah. it's because she's she behaving got, you know, badly. Because she's hitchhiking. Like the, and yeah. If you get hitchhiked, yes. you deserve to die. Whatever. But um, yeah. and Little Darlings, they realize that sex is important than their friends. Not to slight little darlings. <laughs> this film, thinking about what's going on in 1980 and how we think of young girls and how we're hiding how much sexual exploitation there is, how we're hiding issues with child abuse coming up in the school system where it's like, oh, God, well, we're pretty sure she's being abused. Don't even send her to the counselor. Like, it's a different time where it's like, we don't want to mm-hmm. talk about this. We know it's happening. We know it's pervasive, but we don't want to talk about it. And for lack of a better term, Dennis Hopper blows it up <laughs> like and yeah. so you i yeah. i don't know what distributor yeah, yeah. would have taken this on i really don't yeah i i saw a good article that was linking this film kind of ideologically from essentially the the kind of realist stuff you're talking about to what would i was gonna be say harmony corinne is where this is really gonna survive no yeah and, and that's and you get that because that Clark was also bit. tough to distribute yeah yeah T- tough to distribute 
kind of intense in your face stuff yeah. about things that are happening in society I but mean, you this don't really been, want to watch a movie. Which makes Sundance. And it's just, in 1980, yeah. this obviously yeah. couldn't have been at Sundance. Yeah. Had this no. come out in, like, the early 90s of that time, like, we're talking the Tarantino yeah. Linklater era, this would have won every award that was out there. This but would have been nominated for Oscars. Have. It, it makes so, so much sense to me. It couldn't have come out in the early 90s. It was a different yeah. time. Yeah. That man's performance would have had a different context. Hopper was, you know, making yeah. really great erotic thrillers with Jodie Foster in the 90s, which I love. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. That took place in oh, Mexico. God, yes. I love Speaking that of one. recent but, um, restoration. I, no, this, is, this <clears throat> is absolutely a film that is about youth culture in 1980, about the punk scene, about how we just didn't understand childhood and we... Um, we're not paying attention, and nobody's no listening. listening. No Nobody listening. is there. That yeah, that scene where yeah. she is like she comes in late, and just the way she's treated by the teacher is just another problem. And you're like, this kid's messed. Like, that's, how are you yeah, missing all of these red flags? Oh, yeah. Streetwise released in any 1984, but I believe some of the footage was started as early as 1980. And even that film, that was like one of the first films. I was like, hey, did you know that there's like 13 year old kids selling their bodies, living on the streets? Sure. <laughs> like we aren't talking about it as a society. And I mean, if you if you want to get yes, Vancouver, yes. Hookers on Davies, yeah. 1984 yes. as well, which is also uh, like a, a seminal, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, work yeah. uh, by Janice Cole and Holly Dale, yep. which I think has been recently restored yep. as well. Um, yeah, so it's. Yeah, it's it's weird, and I know what you mean. And the other thing that's interesting is, like, number one, I, I guess it's easy to get caught up in because Hopper's such a big character that, like, it's fascinating that he was still so, like, he made a great movie when he was yeah. at, at his lowest. Like, this is pretty much it. Uh, and then also that he was still actually quite in touch with the zeitgeist. I think what he was able to do, and it's what you know about him as an art collector and stuff, too. Like, he was still able to look around him and understand. And that's why this is a fascinating Vancouver movie, too, is that, and maybe, who knows how much is set up. Again, uh, this producer is always clear to say, like, a lot of these locations, a yeah. lot of whatever, whatever Big was gin. was yeah. set up yeah. before Hopper took over. But he he knew yeah he knew where to film he knew how to find these random people he he found the punks that were the actual top punk there band in, in the city you know it's and that's such a like stupid term because Mike but it it <laughs> but the magic there's a magic it's electric and that magic movie. trick is where the film yeah. begins yeah. I think I kind of know where it's going and it's going to be really tough but I I kind of get it and then the way the film ends it puts me on um, kind of in a firing squad for like, how dare you think in the beginning we were going to go mm. that way? That's how stupid and naive and out of touch you yeah. are with really what's happening. And also you thought you were safe. Yeah, you thought you were I safe sitting not. down to watch this movie and you're safe. not. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is it absolutely like I, like I, I guess I kind of implied before it, yeah. it drags oh, Hopper mm-hmm. through it. Like, like this is not a movie that makes Dennis like, and and it, it like it, like he says, I mean, they show old photos of him, and he's he's dressed like Easy Rider, Wild One, sort of like a biker. So I think it's it's him purposefully kind of, yeah, of dragging cast, his own apparently, image through the mud. Luckily, so few people saw it, but I, I no. and it would take, as you said, Becky, the yeah. Dennis Hopper assance occurs in 1986, which is a subject of one of our episodes mm. from uh, second season. Yeah, and he's nominated for an Academy Award in '86, but um. You know, it takes six years between Out of the Blue and that to happen. And and the in-between is a a dark, dark, dark place that only someone who made this film would know is going to happen to them. It makes all the sense in the world that Chloe Sevigny and Natasha Lyonne are the ones who are spearheading the restoration. And that Chloe Sevigny Mm -hmm. owns the Elvis jacket, which she bought off Linda We lost. We haven't even said this. We lost Linda Mans last year. And yes. that was, you know, she was mm-hmm. in her early 60s. Um, I believe she passed from cancer or pneumonia related to cancer. Um, that hit me. Like, that hit me hard, and I hadn't seen this film yeah. yet. Uh, it really was just hit me on the basis of her starring in The Wanderers from 1979, directed by Philip Kaufman, and, of course, Days of Heaven, which is a Hollywood suite favorite and a film that we focus really heavily on in the t- television, um, a year in film version of season one. It... I just, uh, and she hasn't spoken a lot about this film. She didn't speak a lot about this film. She did retire mm-hmm. from acting. You know, you can Google pictures of her at Cannes in 1980, and she's posing with, like, Brooke Shields and, you know, all the Brat Pack or the people that would become the Brat mm-hmm. Pack um, a few years later. 
she just kind of retreated from acting because, as she said, it wasn't like this big decision that she was like, I feel exploited or anything like that. It was that she wasn't getting roles because the kinds of films that had roles for teen girls were going to the Molly Ringwalds and those were the kinds of stories and films like Mm -hmm. this were not being made. And I think that's entirely true that by like 83 the the foxes and the the little darlings and the out of the blues and the hey babes are virtually gone and we have the stupid like um pretty in pink it's a the revisionist fairy tale version of what teens are which for some reason um the breakfast club becomes the gold standard of what a teenager is (laughs) i mean uh, you gotta understand i know i do understand (laughs) if you had shown this to me as a child i think it would have been active an act of like child abuse (laughs) it's that traumatic yeah yeah but you might um, kill yourself i don't know i understand what she was saying like i think a lot of people wrote about her as though she'd been exiled and she kind of just was like no i just stopped getting good jobs and it made sense to have kids and raise she my children. She chose to fade away rather than burn yeah, out. I guess. Sorry, oh I'm going back to it. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, terrible. Uh, I will also say it's very worth um, oh, looking up those so cute, cute photos from Cannes. Like Brooke Shields is in this pretty charming. frilly dress and she's there in this like <laughs> all denim yeah. <laughs> like looks like dennis hopper basically. yeah and the one the ones of her well her and De- there's one That's where the her and dennis hopper are wearing matching photo. outfits which like, is very charming license yeah. it and print it and yeah. uh yes. and they she looks like joyous next is. to him like they look yes. like they're having it's a blast just, you know a so. snapshot of something inaccurate i mean i'm also s- this seems a, like it was yeah. a really collaborative yeah. thing. Like it seemed like he really yeah. respected her. He got it, and she respected him and got it. And they were working on sure. the same like frantic wavelength. Oh yeah, and that's why the magic happens because it's just the tension it of two like rubber bands really just going right. Loved making the movie. Yeah. Look too, at what she did. Good. She was right. started. Yeah. She got I cast mean, yeah. in a fucking made-for-TV like after-school special, and she. Produces this. She was too real. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you want to know the real Linda Mance thing, I want to watch. I've, is nev- I've heard Dorothy, of it. Yeah, which I've heard of it. Only lasted a few episodes. There's photos of it. You know, she it shows up in Gummo. Like facts She's of the life. Mom I'm Gummo. very fascinated. So Harmony Corinne, yeah. that's one of yeah. her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because Harmony Corinne, like I think Harmony yeah, Corinne, 100. So, I mean, she does have a bit of a. It's yeah. not a renaissance, but certain directors pick her out. Um, well after she retired and gave her roles i think he worked very hard just yeah. to get her there i i read a bit she of the, looks uh, the, the same, stuff yeah and and it's i think 20 I, years later yeah <laughs> yeah she looks so upsetting. young that's the crazy thing she looks yeah all right yeah. i'm gonna call it at that point these are both films we think people should see as the restorations are coming they're coming we know mm. um so alicia fletcher thank you for coming and being traumatized once again we appreciate mm, thank it thank you usually i have a, a send out that's a funny throwback <laughs> yeah. and i've got nothing Nothing, to Becky. I have nothing. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I do appreciate you've been talking about the film Foxes and you're wearing a lot of I didn't Fox think about today. that. So I'm thank you for Fox bringing the jumpsuit. That's true. <laughs> Beautiful. And Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for joining us once again. No problem. Like I say, open YouTube, <laughs> Dennis Hopper's Russian Dynamite Death Chair. That's all you need to Google. <laughs> This has been the best episode. All right. And you can join us next week where we're going to have even more shocking material. We've got Emily Gagne from We Really Like Her coming back to the show. And we're going to be looking at a John Carpenter favorite and Adrian Barbeau, too. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.